do that. Um, if I were to ask you guys this morning, what did you do for Thanksgiving? Which I'm sure a lot of, a lot of you guys asked each other that when you were passing in the hallway. All right. All right, let me just do a quick poll here. All right, so how many guys asked somebody, what did you do for Thanksgiving? All right. Responses that you got back. How many, how many responses mentioned something about family? Okay. How many mentioned something about food? This is the big three F's. Anybody mentioned football? A couple, okay. How many said, I spent a portion of the day giving excessive thanks? <laughs> Did anybody say anything about giving thanks on Thanksgiving? A couple hands. Not a, not a popular response, is it? Right? Lesson learned from what we're about to study today in the text. That uh, we're not always celebrating what we're celebrating. You with me? We're not always celebrating. I mean, it's Thanksgiving, and most of us have to think, ah, oh, you know, did I, did I, you know, besides just praying before we ate, or was, was intentional Thanksgiving something that I did on that day? And one of the great things about that holiday is I, I think it, it celebrates something that should characterize us as believers. If there's, if there's anything that we could say that should be an aroma, kind of a perfume that we wear, then when people come in contact with us, they come in contact with Ode Day Thanksgiving. You know, I mean, we smell like people who are grateful. That's what the work of God's grace in our life should produce. But we're not always celebrating what we're celebrating, right? Today, we're going to celebrate communion. Now, I'm going to spend all day in this message today preparing us for that because we're not always celebrating what we're celebrating, right? So I thought it would be helpful for us, especially given the timing of where we are in holiday celebrations, etc., to consider Thanksgiving and its relationship to communion. Now, if you're in John chapter 18, this is an interesting context here. It is a context of the evening, one, one could say in a way the, the last night, it's really not the last night of Jesus' ministry obviously because he's going to continue his ministry uh, for eternity even upon the earth. But in coming as a man, his mission is, is entering the final hour. It's the last night. And there's a lot of stuff going on in this last night. And when we look at all that took place, all that we've heard, Peter preached on, Jeff preached on, uh, different, and Matt preached from this section as well, there's a lot happening here. There's the, the betrayal of Christ is taking place. Judas, who walked with Jesus, is betraying his friend. You remember that moment where Judas walks up and kisses the Son of God? You know... Sort of salt in the wound. You know, Judas come walking into the garden with an angry scowl, yelling, There he is! Get him! But, but to walk up and to kiss. Can you imagine, Jesus, you, you, you betray me with a kiss. The bitterness of a friend betraying him. The whole plot that's been taking place for, for quite some time now, behind the scenes, to kill the Son of God 
is coming to pass. There's going to be little annoyances here. I mean, if you're the son of God, during the evening, after all you've taught and after all I've done for you, kind of a thing, there's going to be an outbreak. There's going to be a little fight, a little squabble amongst the brothers there. Right? This is kind of like a, it's like a family trip, you know. Too much time in the car together. And these guys now are going to break out in the fight as to who's the greatest. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine how Jesus is feeling at this moment? I've, I've spent three years with you guys displaying who really is the only one deserving of great applause. And on my last night with you, you're fighting about which one of you is the greatest. This is, this is, not, this is not an evening filled with fun, right? Moments later, Peter is going to deny that he even knows Jesus. Just a little while after they're in the upper room together, he's going to walk out for perhaps what is the most intense scene in all of Scripture when Jesus goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the, the mounting weight of all of the sin of humanity, it's as though it's being mysteriously collected and there's this pressure in the universe sitting on the sun. Just all of sin is being collected and, and placed, ready to be put on the Son of God. And He is in the garden praying. And the intensity of His prayer, He begins to sweat and, and blood is mixed with His sweat. This is an intense moment. This is all happening in this evening. What, what Jeff preached about last week, the, the trial where the Son of God is going to be put on trial by man. Can you imagine God having to give answers to His creatures and being asked questions from postures of authority and arrogance? You know, what's interesting here is they're going to conduct a trial of an innocent man. The challenge is he's got to be found guilty. That's a challenge before God. But God needs to manage this thing in such a way that the innocent one is going to be found guilty. And all this is unfolding in this one evening. Right? In Luke chapter 22, if you turn back there. Same night is on display. Same events are being portrayed as in John chapter 18. But into that moment we are introduced to something that is very familiar to us because it is on this evening that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper or communion or how many of you guys know the word the Eucharist? If you're from New Orleans, either you're deaf or you know that word. Um, the Eucharist. And what's interesting here is that word, as we'll see in just a moment, it is the word for thanksgiving. Eucharist doesn't mean, I mean, I grew up, you know, Catholic in New Orleans. So for me, Eucharist had its own meaning before it ever had any meaning. You know, it's just kind of, it fit into this activity, this thing that we did. So when I actually started to study the Bible and look at the languages that were involved in the Bible and realizing this, this came from one language into the English language, you didn't realize that the, the Greek word that was used there is the word Eucharist. And it is the word for giving of thanks. And, and we find Jesus instituting this meal in Luke 22, verse 17. It says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks. 
That's where we get the word Eucharist from. That little word right there. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had again given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I find this attractive because this is a featured event in Christianity. Matter of fact, there's been church divisions through the history of the church over understanding what's being told to us to do here. But central to this, and I want to dig through this a little bit so we can walk away with a biblical impression of how, what are we celebrating here. But one thing I wouldn't want to miss out on is that Jesus finds this moment to be an appropriate moment for giving thanks. For an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. Remember the night that we're on, all the events we just described, all that he knows that's about to take place in just a moment of hours. And yet inserted into those events, it is appropriate to give thanks. So this is why I think what characterizes the Christian should be an aroma of gratitude in every moment. Peculiar, but biblical to describe our lives. So Jesus introduces us to this meal. Now, I just want to cover three things in understanding this meal. I want to look at its origins, its content, and then its enduring practice before we actually celebrate communion today. Let's go back and look at the origin here. What's taking place on this night? There's been preparation for this night. Jesus has told his disciples to prepare for this meal. Luke 22, verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread. This is a Jewish festival that has been celebrated for years and years on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So what is going on here? It's very important, very important that you you get the connection that this event flows out of a previous revelation. It will help you understand it. If you if you think the Lord's Supper begins and has no prior history or connection to anything else in Scripture, you'll probably become guilty of misusing it or misunderstanding it. So its origins are very important. Go back to Exodus chapter 12 with me. Exodus chapter 12 records really what is an, a central event in all of Scripture in the Old Testament. You will find more written about this event in the Old Testament probably than anything else. There's a reference point here to this event of the Exodus, this day in which God intervenes in the life of his people and he rescues them out of the, the enslavement in which they lived. Now, immediately that conjures up images for us that have to do with the desert and living in Egypt and away from the promised land. But, but without that, that's picture imagery. It is teaching us something about us. That this great event that God wants to do is to come into our lives and rescue us out of the bondage of sin. And all that happened with Israel is, is sort of a kid's storybook. Right? Why, why does God do that? Well, to get you and I to understand what he's doing. 
Why is Israel chosen? Why is all this recorded? Why is it written down? Why is there such imagery and picture language all throughout the Old Testament? Because it's like a pop-up book. It's God taking his children and helping us to understand, this is why I did this. This is what I'm doing in your life. Do you get it from here? Do you see the illustration? So there's this event where God's people have gone into slavery, and it's bitter slavery in Egypt, and the the goodness of God, he is coming to rescue his people out of bitter slavery. This this is the message of the Bible. This is the message of our lives. If you're a Christian, you are one of the people of God. And what you and I celebrate today is a celebration of God coming and rescuing us out of the bondage, the bitter bondage, not to Pharaoh, not to a government, but to sin and its rule in this world. And God has intervened and rescued us. Well, on the evening before they were actually to leave Egypt, the Passover meal was instituted. Let's let's read and get some of this imagery before us. The Lord said to Moses, chapter 12, verse 1, And Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. They're going to set their calendar based on this event. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Now, I can't go and unpack all this, but but can you see illustration here? God's trying to illustrate something. Not just any lamb, but a, a lamb without blemish. Illustrating what? The sinlessness of Christ, the perfection of Christ. According to each you shall the lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this this event is filled with imagery. 
It is picture language. It is on the highway of life. It is a billboard pointing to something that's coming. It is explaining something in the future, using something in the present that's familiar. Right? Very important that you get that. Now, the images that get created here, this is, this is characteristic of God throughout Scripture. One of the issues here that, that I get amazed sometimes when I hear folks handle the Bible and try and turn it into something incomplete. Not that they preach or handle it completely and accurately, but they just turn God into a God. Who, you know, why, do, why don't we just all love each other and just all get along? Because God is love. Great. God is love. But do you see something in this passage? And I mean, I could hop and skip around the scriptures all over the place. And against the backdrop of all that God's doing, there's this tension going on. Do you you see tension in this passage? There's about to be a problem breaking out on the scene here. Do you see that in the passage? Judgment is coming. And it's a judgment upon all the firstborn. And I won't go into all the plagues and all of what they meant. But, you know, but it's interesting that, that God had assigned the first. And actually, I think Peter prayed about this when he was talking about the offering. God had assigned the first to belong to him. The first that opened the womb, whether it was people or cattle, the first of crops, the first of every increase Humanity was to stop in that moment and acknowledge God. This was critical for their own lives, but it was the worthiness of God to be acknowledged that everything in the world belongs to God. And we breathe the air and we enjoy the produce and we have children all because of the goodness of God. And one was to stop and acknowledge that by offering to God the firstborn. Well, Egypt, but not just Egypt, the world had ceased to do that. No longer was God being acknowledged as God. And so no longer was God being given the place of being worshipped and honored from the first of our lives. So God, when he brings judgment, he judges the first. And he judges the firstborn. That which was to be mine, I will now take. And God does it in judgment. You've got to see this because the, the Bible doesn't make any sense. If your God doesn't judge and he doesn't stand for righteousness and he actually never does pull the trigger, just makes a lot of threats. But no, no, no. God pulls the trigger in this moment. So in this imagery is God's righteous judgment that is right to come in and bring judgment against sin. He's going to do that. But then into this story comes... Mercy. Mercy pops into this story. And it is mercy that is now being explained to the people of God. The people of God are going to be giving a way out of judgment. And God explains how that's going to happen. And when he does, he, ex- he explains what really is a, is a substitute. If you will slay a lamb and take the lamb's life and then take the blood smear it over the lentils and the doors of your home, then I will see the blood and I will pass over you. I will not bring judgment on you. There is a way out. So within this tension, there is the judgment of God, but there is the mercy of God as well. And then God brings further picture language into this. He brings a lamb 
Because one day later, he will use that imagery to help people understand who is the Son of God. You remember the day that John the Baptist lifts up his eyes and by divine revelation, he's looking at a crowd of people and he sees one man coming toward him. And his eyes are open in the spirit and he recognizes. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What was he saying? He may have just might as well have been in the desert and come up with a hockey illustration. What are you talking about, the Lamb of God? Well, they all knew exactly what he was talking about, the Lamb of God. Do you know why they knew? Because from Exodus 12 on, there was this rich imagery of who the Lamb was. And that this Lamb would come taking the place and receiving the judgment and removing the sin from those whose blood was applied to their lives. And there's great imagery here as well, because the, the blood of the Lamb is going to be shed. The question now becomes, is the blood of the Lamb going to be applied? Because God specifically said, you have to take the blood and apply it to your house. Apply it to your lives. Because if I don't see it applied, and I come passing through, I will not pass over. And you will die right along with the Egyptians. And this is great imagery as well. Because this morning, listen, just because you and I have heard the story of the shedding of the Lamb's blood, and we believe, you know, the Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Well, I tell you what, that passage is so critical. Because there's a lot of us who would like to believe that there's a God out there that we can somehow get right with. Because we all know we've done something wrong. I don't have to convince anybody here today. You've done anything wrong in your life? You, you, you got anything hidden you don't want people to know about? You violated something that you should be in jail, but you're here. Isn't it great that you're here? Right? There's stuff that we've done wrong, and somehow we think that God just sort of, ding, 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 and he forgives. You know, what's the basis for God to forgive? Well, he's in a good mood? Well, that, hey, that might have been how your grandfather was. Notice I didn't say father. How your grandfather was. Well, but it's, a, but it's a derogatory comment, so you shouldn't like it. See, I slipped that one in and you didn't notice. You need to stay awake. Uh, I should do this. He will get even with me and it will be ugly. Uh, anyway, I don't even know what I was talking about now. Uh, there, there is a means of getting forgiveness before God. But the Bible says it doesn't ever happen for anyone without the shedding of blood. And then the Bible teaches on that extensively. And it says not the shedding of blood. You can't go sacrifice a cat. You can't go sacrifice a goat. It's going to have to be the blood of a perfect sacrifice who was a man. Now listen, you know what? I know that, that that sounds like scenes from Lord of the Rings or something. It, you know, it sounds like, wow, that's so uncivilized. You know, it, you know, it is what it is. Whether you and I think that we're superior to it or not, I, I wouldn't be too impressed with ourselves. The God of the universe has said the life is in the blood. And we all know that. Medically, we figured that out. You drain the blood out of somebody, their life is over. Because the life is in the blood. And God has said to take the blood is to take the life. And so, therefore, it's the taking of the life that this is about. So it's not enough, though, for us to know that the Lamb has shed His blood. 
that blood must be personally applied to our lives. Listen, you can be here today. And we're going to celebrate communion in a moment. You can be here today and never having received the blood applied to your own life, just aware that these events took place in history and they're part of Christianity and the culture that we understand. Has this happened for you? Did you take the blood of Jesus Christ and apply it to you? Because this Passover thing, it's an illustration of what is going to happen. There's coming a day when God will execute judgment. He will say enough. The way he said enough to Egypt, enough. He will say enough once again to the world. And he will execute judgment on that day. And only those who have the blood of the lamb applied to their lives will he pass over. Now, here's a humbling revelation. Because I have the joy of being able to stand and say, which is the basis for thanksgiving. God will be passing over me on that day. That's important. Matter of fact, there isn't anything more important going on in my life. Than to know in the ultimate scale of life, God is going to pass over me in judgment. And he's going to forgive me. Not only that, he's going to bless me. That's the future that awaits me. Now, I, I hope when I say that, I don't convey any sense of arrogance in that. Because let me just ask this question. When, on the night of the Passover, when, you know, if you've watched cool movies and the, the death angel and the mysterious smoky hand comes and roams through Goshen. On the night that happens, what's the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites? Do the Israelites deserve to know this trick? They slay a lamb and spread the blood over their doorpost. They don't get judged. What? Why do they get to know that? Why does God not tell the Egyptians? Wait, you do realize God does not tell the Egyptians that, right? For, for those of us who struggle with the doctrine of election... It's a beautiful doctrine because the basis of it is no one deserved to be told this. No one deserved this privied information that would spare them of judgment. But God, if he decided to wait for man to figure it out, <clears throat> there's none good, no, not one, and none of them ever would. So none would have been spared on that night. And God said, well, I, I will not have that. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And God draws his people into his mercy and he reveals that if you put your faith here and the blood of the lamb is shed and you apply it to your life, I will be merciful to you and pass over you. And the only difference between you and the people in the land who are going to die on that evening is that I had mercy on you. The only difference between a Christian and somebody in the world who will face the judgment of God is that God had mercy on us. Nobody deserved that, right? It was inside information that saves us, that God chose to reveal to us graciously and mercifully. <clears throat> now, when we look at this meal, again, go back to, to Luke 22. When we look at this meal in Luke 22, Jesus says something 
in verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired this. That, that is a short sentence illustrating a very big deal. Because if you can flow with me, depending on what date you understand in the Old Testament, I'm going to pick the older date. It's been 1,450 years since the Passover was inaugurated. And that Passover was never meant to be an end in itself. It was, it was a signpost. It was an object lesson that they did over and over and over again. So they have been illustrating the life and death of Christ for 1,450 years. And Jesus has earnestly desired to complete the illustration and to move now into the reality. I have earnestly desired for this meal to come. The last time you will celebrate a shadow and you will get the real thing from now on. Now, that's where communion comes from. It's very important that we see all that's in this meal. Now, what, what is in the content of what we call the Eucharist? <clears throat> well, the, well, the word thanksgiving, <clears throat> I'm going to highlight two words because I think they're the most prominent two words in this setting. Thanksgiving and remembrance. The word thanksgiving there is this word Eucharistos. It means to be thankful or grateful. It means well Pleasing. I like that word because I think we're, we're too familiar with some of the other words. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? It's sort of a holiday and it's no longer an activity. I mean, Thanksgiving is, is it's an action. I'm giving thanks. I'm doing something. And yet we can celebrate Thanksgiving without doing something. But there's this effect in this word. And it's found in this word, well-pleasing. This is, this, there's something going on here that's well-pleasing. Right? The the prefix of the word you, it means to be well off. I, I, am, I am well off this morning. Right? You, are, you are here today as a believer. You, you are well off. Does your soul know that? You are well off. There is something to celebrate and to get excited about and to be thankful about and to look at our life from a different perspective. Remember, this evening doesn't seem like an evening for the Eucharist. But yet Jesus sees something greater and he is well off. This is a, this is a night to be thankful. This is a night for joy and celebration. Eucharistos means mindful of favors. Grateful. Thankful, right? To truly celebrate the Eucharist means to be mindful of favored status. Right? Hidden within that word, Eucharist, if you know anything about the Greek, you, if you pull the U out, you get the next word is charis, which we get charismatic, grace, charis. So we are well off because of the grace of God which is the source of our thanksgiving. Look in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15, your outline. It says, For all things are for your sakes. And we'll come back and look at the context in a moment. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. 
The grace of God, which is spreading to more and more, may cause thanksgiving to abound. Not, not just a polite thankfulness. Something that needs songs. Something that needs a special celebration. Something that needs a vehicle to shout and get out of us in a way that we are abounding in thankfulness. Because we're abounding in insight into the grace of God. Your outline there I wrote out, Eucharist is an abundant overflow of thanksgiving that is caused by the grace of God. That's what that word really is. That's what we're about to celebrate. The other element that I think is prominent in this celebration is remembrance. Remembrance. Right? When, when this meal was instituted in Exodus 12, if I can go back real quick and catch for this. Verse 14 of Exodus 12 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You're going to commemorate this. You're going to do this over and over and over again because it's a memorial. When Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, which flowed out of the Passover meal, he told them to what? Do this in remembrance. It is a memorial. Do this over and over and over again in order to help you do what? Remember. The same way in which the Passover meal was intended to cause them to remember something with all of its pictures. Well, here comes the new covenant meal with all of its pictures intended to be an aid in helping us to remember one of the most significant things that happens, I'm sparingly saying that because I could venture to say the most significant thing. When we celebrate communion is the remembrance of what it is that we are celebrating. Now, that's where I want us to walk away from today, a biblical understanding of where to put the emphasis. Because what the Bible does not do is it does not put the emphasis on the substance of the bread and the wine. In the same way that in the Passover meal, it did not put the emphasis on the illustration's substance. It was a lamb. That lamb meant something. It was blood. That showed us something. This is bread. It, it is a symbol that shows us something. The wine is a symbol that shows us something. And in this flow of thought into this meal does not come a discussion about the mystery of the bread becoming the flesh of Christ. And the wine becoming actually his blood. Now, that's where church history went at one point. But I'm just trying to be a, a biblical simpleton. I go to the Bible. I don't want to gather all the other information outside of the Bible and impose it upon a text. You're bound to be confused by something when you do that. I want to go to the Bible and let the Bible just tell me what it has to say first before I do anything with it. Jesus is not in this setting putting the emphasis on substance. He's not doing that. He's drawing a picture the same way that the Old Testament did. And he's telling you, remember, the emphasis here is on remembering. And the symbols that we have in this meal are an aid to accomplish that. Put your outline there. It says the Eucharist then is about the mindful contemplation of a benefit we have received and the giving of thanks in response. John Piper's thought here says, Gratitude is more than saying thank you when someone gives you something. Gratitude is more than an action which we decide to do by an act of willpower. 
You can say the words thank you when there is not gratitude in your heart at all. Custom may dictate that you say the words when you don't really appreciate what has been done for you. What it takes to turn the words thank you into gratitude is the real, genuine feeling of gratitude. Gratitude is a feeling that arises uncoerced in the heart. It cannot be willed into existence directly if it is not there. If you give a 10-year-old a necktie or a pair of socks for Christmas, he may dutifully say thank you. But the spontaneous feeling of gratitude will probably not be there, like it would be if you had given him an electronic game or a hockey stick. Gratitude is a feeling, not an act of willpower. And it is a good feeling. When it rises our heart in our hearts, we like it. It is part of happiness, not misery. Gratitude is a form of delight. <clears throat> I want to be careful to put the emphasis where I think the Bible puts the emphasis. Because this morning what I don't want to do is teach and require that all of us be thankful. I'd like to everybody to leave today required to be thankful. We will be a thankful people from now on. We require it. It's part of the membership now. Um, you you kind of can't do that. You can usher in some form of outward observation, but it will fall short of sincere gratitude. Real Christianity is full of response. It's responding to what God has done. Religion is full of requirement of what we must do. Real Christianity, relating to God in the grace of God, is full of response. God has done something that is mind-blowing, that has brought to us a richness and a benefit that is overwhelming. And in the presence of really seeing that, gratitude floods my soul and it comes out in the expression of thankfulness. Now listen, you, you, can, you can get children, you know, parrots, right? you can get anybody to say thank you. Anything that has vocal speech accomplishment can say thank you. A bird can be taught to say thank you. Does that bird really mean it? You can program your computer to say thank you when you do something to it. You turn it off before it goes off. You can make it say thank you. Do you are you really affected by that? <laughs> your computer says, thank you, Keith. Might even use your name. Does that make you go, oh, that feels so good. You, you know, it doesn't mean a thing to you because you know it doesn't mean it. You don't mean it. <laughs> You're just doing what you have to do. See, this, that's not the thankfulness in the Bible. In, in the Bible, thankful response is, is a byproduct of something else. It, it is seeing the grace of God and almost like my eyes fill with water. I'm overwhelmed. That response is gratitude in the heart. Listen, I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up around religion. Religion required things of me, required certain responses. It required in a service for you to respond a certain way, right? There was uh, responsorial psalms. Y'all remember that? You know, we're going to do something a little bit different at the end of the service, but you remember something like that. Liturgy, when it began to be formulated. 
through church history. It was it was a programmed response. So, you know, this would be done, then you would do it. This would be done, and you would do it. This would be done, and you would do it. How many of y'all eventually got to the point where you were doing without it being in your heart? Right? I mean, that doesn't mean liturgy is wrong. It doesn't mean that we're not aided by that. But I went through life unaffected in my heart by the things that I was saying with my lips. So I could say thank you, I could stand up, I could sit down, I could kneel, I could attend certain things. Right? I mean, holy days of obligation. How many of y'all are familiar with that term? <clears throat> now, now, can you just go there with me? How holy is it to you if you only participate in it because you're obligated? Right? You're, be, you're being, something is being imposed on you from the outside that you are now required to do, so therefore you do it. What a far cry from the biblical gratitude being modeled here. This meal is a celebration of being overwhelmed by the grace of God. Listen, I mean, I, I was probably a weird dude growing up, weird kid growing up. <clears throat> but see, you, you would have never got me to sing in a church. There had been no way. I won't tell you what I thought about people who sang, but you, know, you just didn't do that. If you were cool and you were a dude, you just didn't sing. <laughs> you know, Glee Club, they didn't have that where I went to school. But if they did, those, those guys would have been tortured. <laughs> but, you know, there's something about having your heart won and overwhelmed where you begin to look for vehicles for it to get out of you. And song is one of them. Shouting, right? Excitement, zeal, passion, delight. When, when grace overwhelms you and you understand I'm about to be taken out of a life of sin and being dominated and controlled by sin's power in my life and delivered under the purposes and plan of God for all eternity. There's something about that that fills your heart and gives you a sense of joy that needs a vehicle. So when you give me a beat and you give me some music and you stick some lyrics up there to celebrate that, something's coming out of me. Now, listen, if it doesn't come out of you, you know, Matt can stand up here every Sunday and go, you will sing. <clears throat> Matter of fact, we're not going home here until every one of y'all is singing. You're not singing loud enough and he just keeps playing. It's two o'clock. Finally, come on, sing or we're never leaving. <clears throat> this is not Christianity. This is, a, this is a struggle. This is a struggle in, in children and in leading young people. Because, you know, the, the, the imposition on the external, there's a training dynamic that we want to foster. But, you know, I, I, can't, I can't give your heart revelation of the grace of God. But when you get revelation, you'll sing. You won't just sing. You'll do all kinds of stuff that are just unusual and bizarre. You'll do weird stuff with your money. I mean, you'll just, it'll squeak out of you. All of a sudden, there's something in you that wants to find a way out. And listen, if, you know, if, if you're finding that there's not the escape mechanism for you, you know, don't try and prop it up with something fake. Get to the heart of why that is. I have a low view of the grace of God. Because if you had a high view, well, you'd sing. Man, you'd be doing some stuff. Right, what causes this giving of thanks? Let me give you a different translation of 2 Corinthians 4.15. 
All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Listen, there's something about there's something about tepid appreciation for God that's just simply not God glorifying. Yet you look upon the cross and you're kind of like, yeah, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. And then you watch a NASCAR event or guy score a touchdown, and you are launched out of the sofa. Right? I mean, you are airborne. You know. But you, know, you look at the cross and, yeah. No. Which is better? Well, the football game is. <laughs> Come on. Right? The NASCAR race is better. See, this, this is the plague on modern Christianity. Is we are wildly abounding in thanksgiving and expressionness for stuff that kind of doesn't matter in light of eternity. And then we come in here and we're in the church and we're listening to the preaching of the word and there's singing going on and, we're, and you know. I mean, I, it took me a little long to get my mic on this morning. I'm walking up here. I almost wanted to make an announcement. You know, we were, ha- we were half- like halfway through the first song. I wanted to make an announcement. Oh, we've, we've already started. Hello. We, we started already. Because there was just kind of, you know, too many. Listen, I, I, I'm not trying to prop you up on the outside and say, you will be thankful. You will sing in this church. I'm not trying to go there. But I do want you to be honest. Be honest, for goodness sake. We're about to celebrate something. Are we really going to celebrate it? Or is it going to be like Thanksgiving when we're done? We'll talk about family food and football. But we will not have contemplated the unbelievable benefit that's come into our lives that none of us deserved in a future that is set that nothing, nothing can take from me. Whether it's financial problems, a relationship, a divorce, cancer, nothing can take from you what the grace of God has brought into your life. That's something to celebrate. John Piper says, Almost all English translations miss a beautiful opportunity to preserve in English a play on words that occurs in Paul's Greek. Paul says, It is all for your sake, so that as charis extends to more and more people, it may increase Eucharistian to the glory of God. The Greek word for thanks is built on the word for grace. Charis becomes Eucharistian. This could have been prescribed in English by the use of grace and gratitude, which show the same original root. So I would translate, it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase gratitude to the glory of God. The reason... This is important is because when we try to define thanks or gratitude, what we find is that it has a very close relationship to grace. Unless we see this relationship, we really don't know what gratitude is. See, gratitude is a response to grace. Putting your outline there. Gratitude is expressed thanksgiving is preceded by grace 
realized the degree of my gratitude and my expressiveness of it and my thankfulness is a direct revelation of the degree to which I understand and see the grace of God. Let me just hit one passage here that it's just very helpful. I'll put it in your outline there. Because uh, Eucharist, unfortunately, in church history has become a polluted term. Uh, we, we think of it only, only in association with the communion meal. So we're going to celebrate the Eucharist. Uh, well, you know, you're, what you're really saying in the Greek is we're going to celebrate the grace of God and the giving of thanks. That, that's what you're saying in the Greek. So you, you don't just need this meal to do that. A life can be characterized by the Eucharist, the giving of thanks for the grace of God in our lives. And the Bible uses that term all over the place. In this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, it says, In everything, Eucharistian, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. Now, Jesus illustrated that long before it was even pinned. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he gave thanks amidst the setting of all that was going wrong and all that was about to be suffered and all the denials that were about to take place from his dear friends. In the midst of that, in everything, he gave thanks. Now, let me just highlight this, and then we're going to move into celebrating communion in just a second. Here's what we are saying. This is not in your notes. Here's what we are saying when we live life from a posture of thankfulness in everything. I think there's a distinction between being thankful for everything and being thankful in everything. Right? It's kind of an awkward thing to be thankful for sin and its destructiveness. You know, Inherent in that thing is, is not an event to be thankful for. It is when I step away from it and I look at the grace of God and, the, and what God is doing that I can find an ability to be thankful in it. So I don't have to necessarily celebrate the content of the event to be thankful in everything. So what am I doing? What am I saying when in every moment of my life is a priority that my response is one of thankfulness, gratitude in every moment? Here's what I'm saying. One, I'm saying God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is purposeful. He is all-powerful. In everything, whether that's a good-looking thing, a bad-looking thing, something that has a short lifespan to it, something that will end in catastrophe after a long period of time, in everything, give thanks. Well, you know, the only way I'm going to do that is if I have a big view of the sovereign purposes of God. God is in this event with me. God is ordaining the events of my life. The good ones and the bad ones. The ones that go according to my understanding of what I've labeled good and expedient and the ones that that I don't have wisdom to see how good that really is. God is ordaining all that. So in that moment, I can be. Lord, how how can I possibly, God, be thankful in this moment for these circumstances? Well, God, I can because you are sovereign over them. And you are purposeful in them. There is a divine purpose in them. What we are saying, secondly, is God is good. 
and he is trustworthy. See, I'm talking sincere gratitude, right? I'm not talking put a gun to your head and say thank, say thank you. God says you've got to say thank you. You say thank you for this. Uh, thank you, God. No, no, I'm talking gratitude that overflows out of the heart here. And the only way you can be in a circumstance that doesn't look real good and be thankful that a sovereign God has ordained for it is for you to believe and trust in the goodness of God as well. God would not have done this to bring evil into my life. God would not have done that. See, because I am celebrating the grace of God that's come to me. So I am under the grace of God. I, I cannot interpret an event as being evil from God because I am under the grace of God. I live in the mercy of God. God does good to me. That's what I'm saying when I'm thankful in the midst of something that doesn't look easily thankful. <clears throat> I'm also saying God is doing what is right in my life. I'm thankful, God, you are doing what's right. Because you are righteous. I trust who you are. And in the midst of my fears, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of anger, as I walk through this circumstance, God, you are doing what is right in this moment. And I'm thankful, God. I would not want you to do anything different. That's what you're saying when you're sincerely grateful. You're saying, I believe God's promises. In everything, give thanks. How can you do that? Because I know at the end of this, or somewhere in it, God steps in and interjects his good promises or at the end of the season or at the end of my life, there awaits a promise from God that will make me forget this in an instant. And I believe that and I look to that. And so, God, thank you. I thank you, God, in the midst of this. Listen, humility says with our thankfulness, the life I have is better than what I deserve. When you think, you know, remember, the Israelites were going to spread blood on their doorpost and they were going to walk a week out into the wilderness and complain and want to go back. This is a loyal bunch, right? Your God has just rescued you from judgment. And a week later, you want to go back. You want to go back there? Do you understand? I just judged all the idols of the world and you, you're comfortable Living amongst them. Now, didn't God know that about these guys before he told them to spread the... Right? There, there was no achievement from this group. This is a group of people who would wander in the wilderness and have to die off in the wilderness because they couldn't enter into the promised land. Yet God had mercy on them. And the grace of God still came to their lives. And they got what they did not deserve from God. So always remember, you don't ever want to plead before God for what you deserve. Because God is holy, and you and I fall short of deserving anything good. Now, you might deserve something better in your own eyes than the guy next to you, because you think you've done better, or you haven't been as bad in your own eyes. But before God, none of us deserve the goodness of God. So everything we have, everything we have is better than what we deserve. Everything. So on your worst day, 
it's a better day than what you deserve. And when I tell God, thank you, I'm acknowledging that. So there's a lot being said when I say thank you. Now, those would be, to me, the emphasis in the communion meal. When we celebrate communion, it is a remembering the grace of God in such a way that it causes my heart to abound in thankfulness to God. That's what we're about to do in just a moment. And let me clarify something because I realize we we come from different religious traditions. And so we're bringing a lot of history into this moment with us. And, And let me just give me a little permission here to come close to your toes. You know, what's, what's not about to happen, this is very important. What's not about to happen is you're not about to receive Jesus. You're not going to be receiving Christ in the Eucharist. So I put this in your outline because I wanted to be able to hold on to it. We receive Christ by faith. And we are born again by the Holy Spirit. There's not bread and wine involved in that. And this event, this being born again and indwelt by the Spirit, is now the epicenter of Christianity. The presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is received by faith and who fills our lives as clearly emphasized and displayed in Acts and the Epistles. Not the receiving of Christ on a regular basis through his presence in the bread and the wine. Now that shift of emphasis which took place in church history has paralyzed for many people the work of sanctification in their life. The idea that I'm going to receive Christ and then next week I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive him again. That, just that concept right there. How many questions just came up in your head? Does he stay 100% for seven days? I'm not trying to be stupid here. If you don't come back in a week, is it good for two weeks? Now, here's what, what that emphasis does is it brings a host of questions, but it causes you to miss out on what the New Testament is clearly saying. The Testament doesn't encourage the church to come partake of communion as a means of receiving Christ. The New Testament teaches us to come to Christ by faith. We repent and we come to Christ by faith and the Holy Spirit regenerates us and gives us a new life. And then he is in us never to leave again. So I I don't I don't need to come get Christ this morning. As a matter of fact, the communion meal is only for those who already have received Christ. It's not a means of getting him. It is a celebration of what he has done that I have already received and he now dwells in me. That's very important. Because I'm going to live my life on a daily basis, not awaiting the next time I celebrate communion. It has a place of importance. And there is an experiencing of the grace of God in this meal that I think we need to be careful to look to receive. But I would also say there's an experiencing of the grace of God when you open this word and the Holy Spirit leads you into it. And the mystery of that word comes to life and begins to affect you. There would also be a place of mysterious grace 
coming into our life through fellowship in the body of Christ as we relate to one another and walk together and there's influence. When I commune with God in prayer, whether I do it through the vehicle of celebrating and remembering with the implements, the emblems of the bread and the wine. If I do that in communion and prayer, I am experiencing grace. Right? So this is a means of experiencing grace. But it is not the receiving of Christ. He is not present in the bread in such a way that that's how you receive him. You receive him by faith. This is a picture. Remember the Old Testament picture. We're walking with a picture. Jesus said, remember, and I'm going to give you some aids to help you remember. You're going to hold an emblem in your hand. That thing's going to shout at you. It's my broken body. Do you remember my body was broken for you? You're going to hold in your hand a cup. It's going to shout at you. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. This is the cup of the new covenant. A new day has come. It's going to shout at you all those things. That's what word pictures do. That's what this meal is. It's an incredible word picture. Now, as the guys come, prepare to distribute that. Let me draw our attention to something in closing here. The elements I put in your outline here. And this is something I wish we had time to emphasize every time we celebrate a communion. So I'm, I'm doing this so in the future we can benefit from this dynamic. In your outline it says the elements of biblically understanding and practicing the Eucharist. One, consider its origin. If you want to clearly understand the Eucharist, then you have to remember where it came from. The word picture illustration of the Passover meal that was in the Old Covenant. Second, the emphasis is on remembrance. It is an invitation to contemplate the grace of of God. Now listen, to contemplate the grace of God in such a way that gratitude begins to abound in your heart. So that you can't hold back thankfulness to God. It's not a command to be thankful. It is the overflow of thankfulness as I look at the grace of God and I remember it. Third, it is a giving of thanks. It is actually a giving of thanks. And I don't know if you've ever had an event in your life, that should be this one, but if you've ever had an event in your life where you can't come up with adequate words to express how grateful you are to what somebody has done for you in your life. That's what this is. It is the giving of thanks out of a posture of it's almost impossible for me to give thanks adequately. Four, and Paul brought this in in the New Testament. We should consider it when we take communion. The mindfulness of our connection to the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't illustrate this much when he explains a meal, but Paul comes back and, and brings a great deal of help in this illustration of the body. Corinthians says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 says, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, although they actually were eating the Lord's Supper. Right? They, were, they were doing what we're about to do, but yet they weren't doing what we're about to do. You with me? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. This is the spirit that was in the meetings of the folks together. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Oh, they, they were going through the motions, but they were not celebrating communion. So there's a mindfulness. We are connected to one another. When we celebrate this meal, one bread will be distributed to many. We are all connected through that one body of Christ. And then the last thing, and this is something we don't get a chance to emphasize, and I want to say it clearly today so that you will always, always do this. Self-examination. Is what we're about to do a reality in my life? Do I live under the influence of the grace of God in such a way that when I partake of this meal, I am declaring that which is true about the effect of God's grace on my life? Because Paul warns about that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let a person examine themselves. Every one of us right now, before we ever partake of this meal, ever, whether this is clearly explained or not, it's the admonition of Scripture, so we should know it from the Bible, are to examine our lives. Is my life in agreement with what we just described about what we are celebrating? Am I living a life indulging sin and the pursuit of sin and celebrating that which competes with the glory of God? But when I come in here, I'm going to eat a meal that says, oh God, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for your grace and the work of Christ and what he did for me. Wait a minute. If you really are overwhelmed, then you'll be overwhelmed when you're not here. When you're somewhere else. When sin and temptation are the most real thing in the room with you. Because if you're not, listen to me carefully. If you're not, then what you're about to do is, okay, everybody get up right now and be thankful. Stand up on your feet and be thankful. I'm serious. Get up here and take something that says you're thankful. Right now. What is that? Stay in your seat. Better that you examine your own life and say the grace of God doesn't matter that much to me. That's bad. Then we just go through the motions this morning. Eat a cracker. Drink a cup. So this is not about a cracker and a cup. It's about being overwhelmed with thankfulness for the grace of God that has come through the breaking of the Son of God's body and the shedding of His blood that has come to our lives. If I lack thankfulness, it's because the grace of God has grown distant to me. And then I eat in an unworthy manner. Father, when you told the Israelites about this meal of Passover, it was, it was careful. It had details. You prescribed a certain posture and practice 
from then on. And that was just for a signpost. The meal we eat today is for the real thing. What how amazing this meal it screams at us. Lord, the bread is your body broken by sin and judgment which should have been my brokenness. I will never know, Lord, the day of being broken the way you were broken. I will never have to fear that day of judgment awaits me, Lord. What awaits me is your arms open wide, the joy on your face, for a guilty sinner like me. Or will you run to me or will I run to you? The thought that you would welcome me at all is overwhelming. Or the blood that was shed, this cup, it screams to us. You are forgiven. And you are free. I will never bring your sins up against you. Lord, my sins are many. And my failures are many. And if you were to bring them up, we would be discussing them for a long time. But Lord, I will never know that day. I will never know that moment. For your blood was shed and my sins were forgiven. Lord, this morning, we don't merely want to eat bread and drink a cup. We want to remember, Lord. And we want to be thankful from a heart that is overwhelmed. Help us now as we take this meal. Let me ask you guys, if you will...